with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about the International Monetary Fund slightly lowering its expectation for global growth this year, and China's release of its latest economic figures. What do they tell us? And now let's begin with our top story. The International Monetary Fund slightly lowered its expectation for global growth this year. The IMF expects it grows to bottom out at 2.8 percent this year and rise modestly to 3 percent next year. Stability in the banking industry remains a big concern. Meanwhile, IMF projected China's economy to grow at 5.2 percent this year. So, for more on this, join us on the line now, are Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novem Aki Technologies, and also Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villemet University. So, Yan, first of all, the IMF is now forecasting the global growth at 2.8 percent this year and 3 percent next year. So, what's your estimation? What are the key challenges for the global economy these two years? Yeah, I think this estimate is consistent uh, with、uh, you know my own sort of projection, but also it seems to be the consensus of many economists uh, because uh, we are facing with you know geopolitical tensions,、um, still stubborn you know high inflation,、um, especially in the Western、um, advanced economies and their policy responses to that inflation. And one last factor that the IMF really stressed、um, as a hurdle to growth is the trade and capital flow、uh, fragmentation.、Um, so they have predicted, you know, with the trade tensions between the United States and China,、um, and also with some sort of interruptions of global capital flows, especially, you know, with the、uh, FDI. We are going to see a slower growth, and so by the way, this sort of 2.8 percent of、uh, growth rate this year and 3 percent over the you know next five years on average,、um, this is the lowest、uh, growth forecast for medium term、um, since the 1990s. And so I think the challenges are still uh, pretty uh, you know significant, and so the slower growth will not be conducive. You know, to poverty elevation、um, and also for economic recovery after the pandemic.、Mm-hmm. So Jiahe, so what do you think are the main factors that impact the global economy? Is the inflation still the number one concern? Well, it look it looks like inflation was a very important concern、uh, in the past two,、uh, six months,、uh, but currently it looks、uh, when we look at the inflation situation in the U.S., it, it looks like it's been easing down quite a bit. So, so it might be that、uh, in the next、uh, well six to twelve months, inflation is not that large a concern anymore.、Uh, I'd say、uh, probably people would also become well. I don't say that inflation is not a concern. I just say it's it's probably not as large as it was. When people are expecting the inflation can go、uh, above ten percent or even go to fifteen percent, now it looks like it's under control.、Um, the most important factors to to look forward also include things like the、um, the global price of、uh, commodities, including things like oil and copper. So these are really a、uh, big concerns. Also, there is another very important issue: the trade relation between China and Europe, between China and the U.S. It looks like、uh, the relation between China and Europe is、uh, improving. 
improving with the visiting of European uh, political leaders to China. But uh, the relation between China and the US when we talk about the trade is it's not having uh, much sign of recovering yet. So that's also a concern that people are looking at. Mm. And Jiahua, so how did the IMF World Bank Spring Meeting discuss the banking crisis? Since, you know, the Europe has a different set of banking issues as opposed to the US ones, right? Yeah, that, that's different. I mean, uh, if you look at the crisis in the United States, uh, that's me- that's more like an accident rather than a very large crisis. It's it's like an accident that Silicon Valley Bank did not control its uh, its balance sheet its, and its customers. Uh, very well. So with the spreading of inflation, there was a bank run for the Silicon Valley Bank. So that's what's happened in the United States. But but the whole banking system looks very intact. Um, The large banks like JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, they were not uh, affected from this crisis. They were even benefited because many deposits uh, ran from small banks to large banks. So, so uh, when I say the crisis in the United States, it's more like an accident. But if you look at the problem in Europe right now, when you have credit Suisse going to trouble, uh, some European uh, state-owned funds also invested a lot of money in the Silicon Valley Bank and lost a lot of money. And together with the weak economy that's caused by the war, it looks more like a, a crisis that has a longer period and the slow pace, uh, but but more painful. I mean, the pace is slower. It's not uh, so drastic like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, but it looks like a problem that's even harder to sort about because bank, you know, some of the banks are really losing money and it's it's really no way for you to give this money back. So so it looks more like a long-term problem to me. Mm. So, yeah, so this year's World Bank IMF spring meeting is held among the high inflation and the ongoing, you know, concerns about the, uh, you know, banking sector, banking issues. So are we going to see more interest rate hikes to counter the inflation? And if so, how might such hikes, uh, you know, further influence the banking sector? Yeah, I think um, for the United States, um, I think the Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell had talked about in the previous uh, meeting that the central bank uh, is going to, again, um, trying to, you know, stay on course for the moment. So in other words, you know, the idea that these regional banks' banking problems uh, will be closely monitored and they will uh, come up with other ways, for example, providing more liquidity lines to these banks um, to ensure that they stay healthy. But the monetary policy seems to still focus on fighting inflation instead of, you know, um, pivot towards more sort of financial stability. Because, again, I think um, many people share the view that, yes, these banking troubles are, uh, you know, small scale or they're just mostly due to the mismanagement of these banks. So I think the signal is that the Fed is going to continue to Based their their policy, a monetary policy on you know the evolution of inflation. So that means they they are likely to you know raise the interest rate by another 25 basis point in their next meeting. Um, then probably that will take a pause, and the, the rate will stay at that rate um, for about you know six or nine months. So it's unlikely that they are going to drastically uh, increase rates or reduce rates for that matter. So it seems to stay on course. So the question about how this is going to affect the banks. So I think on the one hand, yes, SVB um, or 
um, these other banks uh, that failed in the United States, they have their peculiar problems, mismanagement problems. They don't mm. have enough liquidity. They don't have enough you know, insurance on their deposits. Um, but still, I think with the rate hikes, with the bond yields going up and the bond value goes down, I think altogether um, there has been a over $600 billion of security value losses, which are unrealized. So they stay on the banks' balance sheets. As long as the banks don't sell the securities, they're fine. But if they do, they will suffer you know, tremendous losses. So I would say we're not out of the woods yet. I think these banks can still you know, have troubles um, if for some reason that they have to sell their government securities. Mm. So, Jiahe, so what do you think? The IMF is now encouraging central banks to continue fighting the inflation while remaining flexible should the conditions change. But what can they do? What, what tools do they have to address the financial stability risks? Well, when, when you talk about... Uh, the, the policies that, that central banks can do, uh, mm. well, it, it's 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 not that much tools that they can choose. They, they could only choose from boosting, um, well, boosting the economy and risk the inflation, or um, you know, risk the economy and um, you know, have a very strong uh, control on inflation. So so it's it's either this or that. You can't you can't choose a way mm. that you say, okay, I'm going to control the inflation as well as boosting the economy. Then you might have lose both of the targets. So I think that that's why IMF is, is trying to say that, okay, you guys should really uh, contain inflation because if the inflation goes uh, out of control and you have something like uh, 8% or 15% inflation, then the whole economic system will be in a problem. Mm. You know, even the economy cannot uh, be boosted because at that time, the traditional economic system will be broken. Uh, businessmen will not be, uh, dare to, to trade with each other because you know, the, the, the benchmark for trading, the, the, the money, you know, this kind of uh, how much your goods is is um, you know, is priced in the market is out of control. So if inflation really go out of control, then you probably won't have a good economy either. But if you have the inflation under control, at least you have inflation under control. Maybe you have a weak economy. But, um, you know, you still have the inflation under control. And the weak economy will gradually um, recover if we encourage, uh, you know, the trade between countries, encourage these uh, countries like the tension between China and U.S. to be dropped. So I think that's why I put its primary target on inflation, because if you control inflation, you, at least you have got inflation under control. But if you don't control inflation, you probably won't have inflation and you probably won't have a good economy. Mm. And so, yeah, problems with the financial instability that might occur is that it creates a lot of volatility, a lot of risk. So is that possible that the U.S. economy could experience a recession this year? Or is this already in a technical recession? And what do you think are the main challenges for the U.S. economy? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think I do um, share the concern about inflation as the previous speaker talked about, but um, I think for one, we probably don't want to overestimate, you know, how much the inflation will be sort of so-called out of control, because um, we have seen the inflation steadily, you know, uh, going down in the United States. Uh, the, the, the March inflation number is 5% uh, on the year-to-year -year basis. And because of banking crises, banks, uh, especially smaller banks, they are uh, reducing their lending. Uh, we've seen 
you know, for the two weeks ending in March 29th, um, the entire commercial banking lending has gone down by $105 billion in the, in the United States. So I think, you know, the commercial banks are already tightening their lending. So in other words, this will in some ways slow down economic activities and fight and, and contain inflation. Um, and also when we look at the job numbers, right, March only added 236,000 jobs in the U.S. And so that is much lower than the previous months. Um, the job vacancy versus, you know, job seekers, that ratio has gone down from 1.9 to 1.7. So I think there are a lot of signs that point to a softening economy, uh, which means I think inflation will in some ways uh, contained. So, so based on that, I think it's important to really think about, you know, what monetary policy should should or should not do, right? So I'm not sure continue to rate hike would be a best way to the so-called fighting inflation, um, especially when you think about, you know, this idea uh, that you want to cool down the job market, which is already cooling down. Wage growth is only 4% when inflation was 6%. Um, and profit margin, on the other hand, have been really rising, um, 16% as the gross profit margin in the United States. And last time we saw that number was, you know, after the Second World War. So again, I, I agree inflation uh, could be tricky, but I don't know continue to hiking rates and push the economy towards recession is the best way to deal with it. Mm. Uh, the conference board, by the way, has estimated, you know, they projected 99% chance of having a recession in the United States within the next month. And, you know, Bank of America also pretty much saying when you look at the manufacturing activities, looking at earnings for businesses, looking housing prices, job market, oil prices, yield curves, all these point to uh, a like, you know, a high likelihood of recession. Uh, but that said, I think the general consensus still is the U.S. is probably going to grow. IMF predicted, you know, 1.6% growth rate, um, which, you know, it's not exactly recession, you know, by the standard definition, but definitely doesn't mean a, you know, rosy economy. Mm. And Yan, so talking about the global economy, China is a positive note in the economic outlook. China has reopened and the IMF is forecasting China's economy will grow at 5.2% this year. So what's the basis for this optimism? And how do you see China's reopening this year and its influence on the global economy? Right. I think the basis for optimism, one has to do, of course, that reopening um, after the COVID and a lot of the pent up demand. Um, and also, I think China is really pushing forward to, you know, increasing trade, um, increasing investment um, and a lot of fiscal stimulus, you know, at the local level to finance, you know, infrastructure spent uh, construction and so on and so forth. So I think that optimism is well placed. I think it does have a good foundation. And in terms of China's contribution, um, I definitely think, you know, with China's um, economic recovery, it's going to add to the global demand, right? China will buy a lot of commodities, you know, Chinese tourists uh, will contribute to, you know, tourism revenues for many countries. Um, so that would definitely be helpful for the global economy. And also on the supply side, you know, China's uh, global sort of a supply chain, right? China occupies a very important note uh, note in that global supply chain. So with China fully on board and produce, um, you know, many of the products that would help to reduce that inflationary pressure uh, by augmenting, you know, the supply of products. Mm. So Jiahe, so what about Asia? Asia's emerging markets are expected to see a substantial rise in economic output with India and China set to account for half of the global growth. So what is making Asia faring better than the rest of the world? 
Well, I think that there are a few reasons. I mean, if you, if you look at the Asian economy, there are a few parts. I mean, China definitely, India, as you mentioned, its population is now uh, as much as China has, 1.4 billion people. There is also the ASEAN, so that got 1 billion people over there. And then you have the traditional uh, maturity economy that is Japan and South Korea. So, I mean, Asia is the place where you, you have a lot of vitality for economy. And if you talk about why Asia has been uh, developing quite well uh, in this world that looks like fulfilled with, uh, you know, breaking news and chaosis, is, uh, I think there are two reasons. First is that if you look at the political environment in Asia right now, uh, there is uh, there is no war, there is no trade tension. I mean, China and Asia are trying to increase the trade uh, with each other. Actually, we have been a large amount of shipping coming from Asian countries. We, we got its stocks and its uh, well, its annual growth increase like ten percent or fifteen percent every year. That that's that's marvelous because you know these kind of trading between China and Asian countries are really rising. Uh, another reason behind this rapid growth is also because um, the comparatively speaking low economic development of the Asian region. I mean, if you look at the per capita GDP, currently China is having like 13,000 US dollar. India is much lower, uh, just a few thousand US dollar per capita GDP. And if you talk about countries like Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, well, Malaysia is more developed, but Indonesia is, you know, uh, Philippines, they're much less developed. So when you have a less developed economic uh, level, you have a potential uh, growth rate that is uh, much faster than mature economies. So that's also another reason uh, beside its stable political environment. Mm. So, Yen, the factors that contributing to the slowdown of the world economy, you know, one of them is the rising geopolitical tension, inflation, and then the IMF warns also the increasing fragmentation of the global economy. And IMF warns that the trade fragmentation is going to cost 7% of the global GDP. So trade fragmentation, also FDI fragmentation, why is that a dangerous signal, do you think? Right, so the 7% cost to GDP um, because of trade fragmentation, and they also added another 12% of global GDP as a cost of FDI fragmentation. So the reason that these are costly, um, the, the biggest reason, right, of course, is because it reduces the economic efficiency. So in other words, instead of, you know, trading with each other to seek the most productive, most efficient production, you are now diverting um, your trade with the two, you know, the so-called friendly nations or like-minded nations. Um, and the FDI is the same story, right? This idea that we're not going to seek the most efficient production site, um, but we're looking for the so-called French shoring, um, moving the supply chain to more costly countries, but, you know, somehow these countries are less, uh, you know, risky um, or, pro or, or security threatening as they would, you know, claim. So this would then reduce, you know, efficiency. And on top of that, I think it also really bring up that, you know, geopolitical and economic tensions. So in other words, that could not only reduce efficiency, but also reduce the scale, um, the size of economic activities. So I think all of this would then, you know, reduce the potential, right, for the global economy to grow. Mm. Um, and that's why I think IMF is warning about it. So this idea, um, you know, again, we want to duplicate the supply chain, um, not just in the most efficient countries, but all over the world. 
um, this idea that we don't want to trade based on, you know, some of the efficiency and competition and healthy competition, um, but rather, you know, erect that sort of protectionism um, barriers, then all these would then, you know, reduce economic efficiency and also reduce economic size. Mm-hmm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Vidamat University, and also Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novum Archi Technologies. And after a short break, we'll take a look at China's latest economic figures. What do they tell us? Stay with us. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. D-Dime, a podcast of CGT Radio. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Official data shows that China's Consumer Price Index, or CPI, rose 0.7% year-on-year in March. And this was lowered from the 1% increase in February. Meanwhile, the country's Producer Price Index, or PPI, went down 2.5% in the same month. So, Yan, what do the latest economic figures tell us about China's economy this year? I think um, this sort of low inflation even that seem to indicate that demand is yet to bounce back um, as strongly as we would like. But I think that is also in some ways normal because um, what has really seen a great rebound uh, was really the service sector. Um, when we look at the, for example, the PMI, the Purchasing Manager and Index, we have seen the non-manufacturing PMI and especially the service PMI um, it has expanded at the fastest pace in nearly, you know, 12 years. Now the index, um, you know, I mean, now means back to March. Um, the service purchasing uh, index, purchasing manager index, um, rose to 57.8 in March. So that means the service sector is expanding, you know, very quickly, and that is definitely helpful um, for the economy uh, because that is where, you know, the demand and the supply. Right, the demand in the sense that people are demanding for services, and then the supply of services could create jobs. So I think that is a good sign of of uh, recovery. Um, but because I think you know the 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 supply of the services is recovering well, it does not increase the price, the, the sort of the inflation pressure um, for that sector. So that in some ways is a good is a good thing. Um, but what does need to happen, though, is I think we do need more fiscal stimulus um, in both you know supporting. SMEs um, in also supporting job creations and supporting people's consumption and consumer confidence. Mm. And so, Jiahe, do you see the policymakers will, you know, roll out some supportive policy this year to boost the economic growth? 
Well, it looks like uh, the policymaker is doing quite a lot of things uh, this year. We have seen it from uh, various aspects. For example, the central bank has actually pulled a lot of liquidity into the market, uh, cutting reserve requirement ratios, these kind of things. Uh, some of the banks has also lowered uh, their deposit rates, so that encourages about the consumption from some extent. Now, from the fiscal policy, we have also seen a lot of investment into state-led uh, programs. Um, also, recently, a meeting has been started um, in Hainan, encouraging the consumption. So, if if you really read into uh, the policies, it has been. Uh, a strong focus on consumption. I mean, there are three cornerstones of China's economy, the um, in government investment, uh, well, the fixed asset investment, these kind of things, um, international trade and the consumption. Uh, currently, uh, China's government is putting its largest focus on consumption because international trade is actually uh, something that is not strongly determined by China's own policy alone. Uh, you must have a very strong demand overseas. That's not something China's policies can really decide. Um, and if you look at investment, it has actually taken a lot of roles in the past three years. I mean, in the past three years, especially in 2022, there has been a lot of investment conducted by the government uh, in order to uh, counter the impact of economic slowdown. So uh, that is to say uh, the investment has been made enough. So this year there has been a lot of uh, focus on the encouragement of consumption in our economy, like the consumption of cars, consumption of uh, properties, also the um, casual consumptions, restaurants, tourism, all these kind of things. Mm. And Yen, so will China remain a hot destination for the uh, FDI or foreign direct investment for this year? And now that China has reopened, so how do you see the investor sentiment in China? Right. I think, you know, there are definitely two different forces, right? So on the one hand, I think there is this sort of pull factor and push factor that, you know, China remains um, to be a growing uh, a large market. So there are a lot of the so-called market seeking FDI will come to China. So, you know, for instance, Apple wanted to open factories in China because they wanted to sell iPhones to Chinese consumers and Tesla is doing the same thing. Um, so there are definitely more these kinds of market seeking FDI that would want to come to China. You know, in general, I think China will remain to be a attractive um, destination. Um, for you know both market seeking but also efficiency seeking FDI um, just because China's market is so vast and it's rising and China also has you know the most productive most efficient most complete um, supply chain um, and you know partner with other ASEAN countries and other you know Asian countries so I do think that you know China is going to remain to be a, um, you know, a attractive place for FBI. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics at Villamet University and also Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novem Archie Technologies. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.